This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. This episode of the Cherish Podcast is sponsored by Side Door, a free and simple online tool that will transform your design business. Sustainability is a hot topic at the moment, and in the face of extreme weather, extensive air and water pollution, and the increasing scarcity of raw materials, it's only going to become more so. But how do we change the situation? Design is an industry that stresses the new and the fashionable that encourages renovations and continual home improvements. We embrace trends and encourage change. But what if your client's dream home creates an environmental nightmare? Can designers create stylish, comfortable homes that don't ravage the planet? The EPA estimates that 12 million tons of home furnishings are thrown out each year, and 80% of them end up going to landfills. And that's not even counting the hundreds of tons of construction and demolition debris. The situation is literally not sustainable. It is all too easy to get depressed and throw up our hands in the face of these demoralizing statistics. What can a designer actually do? Buying antique and vintage pieces is one obvious step, and reducing shipping by buying locally is another. But beyond that, what? I'm fortunate to have with me today three women who are working hard and moving way beyond obvious easy steps to make the design industry a far better steward of the environment. First up is Katie Story, a San Francisco-based designer and founder of Good Future Design Alliance. In creating her stylish and serene rooms, Katie became disgusted at how much waste, from old furniture and appliances to shipping boxes and building materials, was being thrown out. The aim of the GFDA is to reduce waste by 50% through awareness and community action, and the organization has already expanded beyond San Francisco to Nashville, Minneapolis, and Seattle. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. Susan Ingalls is the Executive Director of the Sustainable Furnishings Council, which she helped found in 2006. The SFC is a coalition of manufacturers, retailers, and designers dedicated to raising awareness and expanding the adoption of environmentally sustainable practices across the home furnishings industry. It has an extensive educational program and organizes working groups around the country dealing with waste reduction, water management, health, and equity. Hello, Susan. Hello. And finally, we have New York City designer Laurence Carr, whose stylish and eclectic rooms aim to go beyond beauty to create a sense of safety and serenity using both ancient techniques like feng shui and the newest technological advances. She's also a member of the Sustainable Furnishings Council and is a passionate advocate for the environment, the circular economy, and reducing design's harmful impact. Welcome, Laurence. Hello, Michael. Great to be here. So glad you're all here. So this is a huge topic, and it's one that, as I said, can be a little demoralizing. And so I want to get a sense. I'm going to start with you, Katie. I want to get a sense, like, really, I want a little more background about what, you know, the organization that you started and how you got other people interested in it. Because I think one thing, designers, we all 
designers tend to think, yes, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. But then, you know, there's deadlines, there's installations that have to get done. You need to have the house ready in a certain amount of time. So how, how did you start thinking differently about all of this? And how did you get other people to join you? So I am, like you mentioned, I'm an interior designer, first and foremost. I've had my firm here in San Francisco for eight years. We're a small but mighty team with dozens of projects a year, equaling hundreds of thousands of square feet a year. So that's a lot of stuff to put into spaces. Right. I do love being an interior designer, but there were a couple of pivotal moments in that happened actually within a couple of weeks of each other, which was interesting, in that I ordered a sofa in the Bay Area that ended up in North Carolina to come back to my client's home in the Bay Area. And I said, this is crazy. That was 3,000 extra miles that it traveled to get across the Bay Bridge. <laughs> so that happened first. <laughs> and then the second, and meanwhile, I was like, where is this sofa? It's super late. Why is it taking so long? Because it went across the country and back. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that I um, was at this large commercial install downtown and something, a project we've been working on for months. And all I could see instead of our beautiful work were these piles of plastic, of styrofoam, of packaging peanuts, like concrete planters wrapped in plastic, which is kind of silly because <laughs> they're concrete <laughs> planters to be outside. So these two things kind of happened very, like within the same month of each other. And I just said, this can't happen anymore. I'm a three-person team and I'm creating this much waste. Imagine the enormity of this problem. So I fully admit that I was part of the problem. You know, mm -hmm. this is a large issue to tackle. So I started looking into who was doing what. There's B Corps, there's LEAD. There's all kinds of organizations doing great stuff, but no organization that was really tackling waste, which is so tangible, so uh, and so present in our lives, right? It's like something we really need to get under control. There was also no organization that was bringing together all the players in the industry. So like interior designers, architects, builders, landscapers, and makers, and all day, as all of us know, like we're all talking to each other. I call the architect, who calls the builder, et cetera. So I really felt like we needed to have this alliance where the entire industry was getting on board. So that was kind of the evolution of it. So I started reaching out. Um, I went to San Francisco Department of the Environment. I called Recology, our local waste management company here, and said, give me the facts. What is the scope of the problem? And it was huge, kind of like you mentioned in the intro, like, 500 million tons of construction and demo debris every year in the U.S. 12 million of that is furniture. Like that is an enormous amount. So the scope is huge. I started bringing on some interested designers and architects in the Bay Area. And we launched the Good Future Design Alliance in January 2020, right before the pandemic came. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's, that's where great. we are. I'm happy to talk more about it throughout this program. Yeah, but. absolutely. And Susan, obviously the Sustainable Furnishing Council is one of the older, from 2006, I mean, really ancient organizations <laughs> working on this problem. So how does that work and how is it sort of different from the Good um, Future Design Alliance? How, is it more yes. an industry organization? Yes, and both of us um, are involving 
all segments of the industry we're working in. Sustainable Furnishings Council works in residential furnishings in general. So Katie mentioned being on a commercial project downtown. If she did only commercial, she wouldn't be involved with us in residential uh, oh, sustainable see. furnishings council because we're mm-hmm. focused on residential. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. We're focused on residential because the residential industry is more fragmented than the commercial right. industry. And that is the when when we were starting in 2006 when i myself showed up for a meeting that somebody else jerry cooklin had called that was to discuss whether we would have such an organization i learned at that meeting that the residential furnishings industry is 80 billion dollars at retail and i being naive and i thought oh $80 billion? That's not so big. We can solve this one. <laughs> yeah, easy. <laughs> but what I soon learned or have learned in the the ensuing 15 years is it's $80 billion moving pieces, practically. Yeah, you know, exactly. I know. Very complex supply chains. But our members are involved in various points of that supply chain. And as you mentioned in the intro, we're an educational organization. Our in- educational programming reaches beyond our members throughout the residential furnishings industry. But we do have as our members suppliers of materials, manufacturers of all kinds of products, furniture, rugs, lighting, all sorts of things that we use to furnish our homes, design firms, and stores. Traditionally, retailers and really traditionally independent retail has driven the furniture industry and things have changed a lot even in the 15 years of our existence. But working with independent retailers is still an important part of our work. There mm-hmm. there are obviously very big furniture companies. There are large furniture retailing chains. But most of the furniture sold in North America is sh- sold through smaller companies. Most of it is not sold through the great big ones. Right. Interesting. So, Laurence, I want to ask you, I mean, your design philosophy is very much based on this idea of wellness, as we mentioned, feng shui and, and kind of achieving balance and all this. So how did that become, how did you know, sustainability become part of that. I can, I can mentally get the connection. Yes, they're, they're connected, but how did you actively become involved? So I, I really think, you know, knowing that the construction industry, as Suzanne explained, you know, is a massive contributor to the consumption, you know, of materials as well as the production of waste. Not only it has an impact on, on human health and our wellness, mm-hmm. but also um, that's where uh, the sustainability focus came in because the intersection of health, wellness and sustainability all work together in, in just creating more healthy and uh, and well-oriented environments. Um, right. So that's, that's where my focus for sustainability started. And um, similar to Katie, I've been running uh, my New York design company for the last five years. And I came really into design to create really this restorative and regenerative and wellness-oriented environments. Because what I was seeing into the industry is that that focus on sustainability and also particularly circularity 
was not really put forward. So that's how it all started uh, for me to really start writing a lot about this on my blog, then becoming really uh, an active uh, member of the Circular City Week in New York, Mm -hmm. which is an annual event um, that happens in March in New York City, all about circular economy. I became a member with the Sustainable Furnishing Council and and became an ambassador for this uh, organization as well. Right. Well, you know, I'm, you know, Cherish obviously is a big proponent of the circular economy and a lot of what is on the site is vintage stuff. And they're, you know, it's almost sustainability now. It's almost become a fashion, but, you know, like fashions, they come in and then they go out. And this is one that we can't afford to have go out of style. So I guess my question, like Katie, I'd love to get a sense from you. Do you feel that your clients are on board with this now, or is this something that you have to point out to them? Because, I mean, I know the situation, a lot of designers in New York work on big new apartments and big towers, in which case the clients buy these apartments and then they want to rip out the bathrooms or rip out the brand new kitchens, get, you know, even higher level appliances. It's, so how, is that mindset changing? Yes and no. It's, I think that the way I see this issue is that we as design professionals are have such like a, we have the luxury of and the privilege of designing the built environment whether it's a cafe or a library or your home or your office like we create these senses and we create these spaces so we're really at, at the seat of responsibility for leading this direction and leading this conversation so I can't say that all of my clients come asking for more sustainable, low-waste solutions, but I feel like it's my responsibility to tell them about it. And one of the things we really encourage is like at the beginning of a project, you want to really set up the mindset, like set your values. If you're in a um, sustainable furnishings council member or a GFDA member, say that proudly, like mention it up front that this is what we stand for. This is how we operate. This is how we source materials. And then hopefully your clients are going to get on board. If not, maybe it's not the right fit. But I do really think this needs to be led by design and build professionals. We have so, it's like when you hire a professional to do anything, a doctor, a lawyer, Mm -hmm. graphic designer, you want them to lead you through the process and lead you in the smartest and best way. And I feel like that's what our role is now, not only Mm -hmm. to create these beautiful spaces, but to do it in a really responsible way. Yeah. I'll jump in and agree, if I may, because you, Katie, and Laurence are not only influencing and guiding consumer behavior, you are also very influential with the manufacturers. And so you're, they are, they're paying attention to you. So you all have great power. And I really appreciate that. Right. And, and Susan, I wanted to ask you exactly about that because you know, furniture in this country, especially the furniture that's, you know, designers buy from certain places and have custom things custom made and work with artisans. But a lot of the furniture, as you said, in this country is sold at like mom and pop furniture shops and or through department stores even or whatever. So and for a long time, a lot of that stuff was coming from China, which, as we know, is a, one of the world's major polluters. We're also not so great in the U.S. ourselves, but I don't want to point fingers, but that's the case. So how 
how has been the attitude within the industry in terms of when you said to, you know, when you would talk to manufacturers and say, you know, this isn't necessarily the best way to do things? And I'll tell you the truth. Each of our now 400 member companies does have their own public and verifiable commitment to sustainability. Now, that means 400 different things to those 400 different Mm -hmm. companies, and that's fine with us because the planet is in enough trouble that we all need to start where we are and go forward. And it's fine with me if in going forward your priority is more on one thing or another. We do ask members always to be mindful of reducing energy consumption and managing their supply chains more carefully for minimizing environmental footprint and being loud about it. As Katie was saying, Mm -hmm. it's very important that we share what we're doing and inspire others to do what they can. Now, companies, we do get different reactions from manufacturers. Some manufacturers respond to our request that they be in action on those three areas saying, oh, we're not good enough yet. We'll join after we have done more. And we say, fine, do whatever is comfortable for you, but... When you join, we as an organization can provide you with all the more hand-holding and resources to help you proceed on your path more quickly. So when they come to you, you don't say, oh, you're a sinner. We don't want you. you exactly. You're like prodigal children. that like You embrace them and we are, guide we embrace them. them. <laughs> we, we embrace them and guide them. We are happy to have everybody who has a commitment be involved with us, whether they are large, medium, or small company and whatever segment of the industry and wherever they are on their journey because it's it everybody has got to be on this journey there is no end to right. it right but Lawrence I want to ask you there because there is that mindset among certain people like I had a designer once tell me that he had recommended to a client all these beautiful antique pieces and the client was like why would I want anyone else's used furniture? You know, even though these were gorgeous antique pieces that he'd spec. So have you had resistance from your clients or do you feel that they come to you knowing they want to create a better environment and they're aware that, you know, our homes are all part of the larger world? I mean, there's no escape yes. from that. So how, yes. how has that been in terms of your business? It, it's it's mixed. I, I would say that clients, new clients that tend to come to us uh, are aware of our approach. So they mm-hmm. tend to be quite, uh, you know, uh, environmentally conscious clients. However, I did have some, and, and we do uh, have some uh, reticence here and there. So for used furniture, we try to really angle, because as Katie explained, it is our duty, it is our role as designers to show how expert we are, especially being eco-conscious designers and how we can help you to preserve this planet and continue in this industry while we can use all sorts of ways. And and one of those is to really point out to our clients, you know, let's try to design waste out of this process. And how can we do this? Well, you know, use furniture, a company like Cherish is phenomenal because what we're doing is that we are avoiding to put more things in the landfill. And, mm-hmm. and maybe by, by putting that angle and really explaining that 
it goes beyond just the consumption of, you know, renovating a home or a workspace or a retail space and hospitality space. It, it is about really saving the planet and putting less things out in the landfill. So, you know, that's one example. Another one could be just explaining how decluttering can be different, you know, and, and save and, and maybe using it in a different way and reorganizing whatever we want to get rid of and how to do it, you know, maybe mm-hmm. donate and then maybe also have less, less is another, is another right. way. Well, you know, and recycling in the circular economy is, I think people, there's a growing awareness of that, but, you know, and we are a country that people like to buy things and people accumulate things. And, you know, the, there's those storage Units that are all across this country are very telling about the nature of American consumption. So I guess my question is, how do you get, like you were saying, less is more. It's a great philosophy, but how do you convey that? Like, Katie, do you, is that an issue for some of your clients or do they come to you understanding? How do you do that? Yeah, (laughs) great question. So, (laughs) no, it it is, so we should clarify that this is not, easy. Parts of this uh, movement and this change to more sustainable design is very easy. There are actually like steps that maybe later in the call we get into, but like Mm -hmm. some parts are really easy, but others aren't, you know, and Mm -hmm. this is a perfect question. So it actually takes like the way I kind of picture it. So first off, like with the GFDA, we're asking for 50% reduction over five years. We are a low waste movement. We are not a zero waste movement because there is no way we could be. That would be straight up greenwashing. And we're not into that right now. Um, (laughs) Or hopefully ever. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I still like to have beautiful things around me, you know, I mean. Exactly. Right. Like we're not trying to create a sad, like ugly future. Right. So what we're looking at is how do we go we have 12 million tons of furniture going to the landfill every year. So that's 12 million tons that we can start to pick away at, right? Mm-hmm. If we get to 50%, that's 6 million tons. That's still quite a lot of furniture and plenty of stuff to consume. So let me just put that out there, that we're not trying to get to zero waste. We're not right. saying don't ever buy anything right. new ever again. Right. Um That'd be horrible for their economy <laughs> and right. all different things. But we are asking to take take this, take a home with all the things in it, everything you can imagine. Look around, whoever's listening, everything that you're sitting next to. And of those things, which ones can be refinished, revitalized, recycled, upcycled, donated, etc.? And then as a designer, you kind of take the whole package when a client comes to you and says, I have 4,000 square feet. What can you do with it? You take the whole package and see what components are going to be the best to revitalize, to find vintage, to donate, etc. And so it's a little bit of a puzzle, to be honest, but it is possible. Hi, everybody. My name is Anna Brockway. I am the co-founder and president of Cherish, and I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you all about a transformative new sales tool called SideDoor. First, SideDoor is free for qualifying designers and trade brands. Second, instead of settling for the 1% to 3% offered by affiliate programs, on SideDoor, you can access your favorite trade brands and earn, on average, 
30% of each sale. Finally, instead of sending people to other sites and other places to spend their money, SideDoor gives you a way to have clients check out directly from you. Best of all, you don't have to deal with any of the fulfillment. The SideDoor team places the order, coordinates the freight, and handles the customer service. Sound too good to be true? It's not. SideDoor is a groundbreaking online tool, and it allows the best practices of our industry and helps designers become more profitable. Request access at onsidedoor.com. That's O-N-S-I-D-E-O-O-R.com, onsidedoor.com. And now back to our show. Okay. Now, you mentioned donations, and that's one of the things that I think is really important that even today, not enough designers and not enough architects and developers know about. And I would love to get a sense of like what you think are the, like Susan, maybe you could help with mm-hmm. this, but either, you know, Laurence or Katie, what are some of the better organizations? I mean, I, I mean, I, what Habitat for Humanity does is phenomenal, but how, if you're renovating a house and you have a fairly new kitchen, you know, stove and refrigerator, how do you get that to Habitat for Humanity? Mm-hmm. Or how do you get it to the local homeless shelter or, you know, housing group that, that really mm-hmm. works with um, the mm-hmm. homeless? And what are this? How does that work? There are different solutions in different communities, and mm-hmm. one of the things about Very Habitat local. for yeah, and, but one of the things about Habitat for Humanity is they're everywhere, and so mm-hmm. every community probably has a Habitat for Humanity restore. Mm-hmm. Every community likely has some other options as well. And where I live, the PTA thrift shop is a big recipient, that, and it does a lot for our local mm-hmm. schools. If you're wondering what the right place is in your community, I suggest that you call your municipal solid waste facility. They are dealing with overcrowded landfills and they will know who takes what and how. And so, and they are working for you. Your tax dollars are supporting the municipality. And so call your municipal solid waste facility and Ask them, what's the best place in my community for donating whatever it is, appliances, furniture, rugs, whatever. And there are tools online for carpeting. There's a website, Carpet America Recovery Effort. For There are various online tools that you can use. The Mattress Recycling Council has a map, and, you know, it's easy to find places for those specific things, but your municipal solid waste people are going to know all about what's possible locally. Oh, great. And does it work on a larger scale, like developers and that kind of thing, when people go in and renovate buildings, the same thing? Yeah. Like The the construction tip that is Mm -hmm. brought to a construction site is often owned by a company that then Then recycles what it can from it. I've been involved with Housing Works for decades and the thrift shops, and that's a great thing. But then friends of mine would complain, oh, they wouldn't take my old sofa because Mm -hmm. they felt they couldn't sell it. You know, it's (laughs) like, I said, well, it's the New York market. It's a very sophisticated Mm -hmm. market. They're not going to take a broken down old sofa. But, you know, if it's something good. So, Katie, how do you deal with this? Yeah, so what we try and do, the reason we are, like, 
we're taking our time to move into new chapters or new geographic areas is because what we're trying to do is really get a lay of the land of who's doing what in each local area. It's easy enough to find sustainable vendors online or national vendors, whatever. That is easy enough to do. But what we really want to do with each new chapter that we open is find where those resale places are, where those donation yards are, where those PTAs are, or those, all Mm. of the, we call them redistribution opportunities, you know, where you can keep your stuff out of the landfill. And we on a national level have partnered with this amazing organization called Renovation Angel. Oh, yes. I was going to ask about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we got connected early on with Renovation Angel and they, um, they work nationally. They've started off in the East Coast, but now they're working nationally and they come and take luxury kitchens, households full of furniture. Like I had a project in Marin um, like a 20,000 square foot home that Whoa. the client had, I know the client had to move out of, out of state for various reasons. And they weren't too concerned about their furniture. What happened with it? Cause they were going to buy new furniture. And I said, no way, this is not happening. Mm-hmm. So I called renovation angel and I said, I know you specialize in kitchens, but are you interested in an entire estate of furniture? So they came with two truckloads and like pulled out the kitchen, donated it, upcycled it. And then with the furniture, they resold it. So that is a super valuable partner that we have built with the GFDA. And we want to keep like expanding that so that it's like, an easy resource. So there's, cause we all get tired of like, oh, I just walked down to Goodwill. They won't take it or to housing works or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or I sat on the phone and talked to a volunteer who doesn't know what, what the right. right answer is. Right. That gets frustrating. Our time is valuable. So we're really trying to connect the dots and make this as seamless as possible. And on your website, for example, are there a list of resources in the cities that where you have chapters or how do, how do you get the word out? This is the other thing. I mean, I know you know, any message you're trying to get, you have to repeat it 150,000 times. And then people say, oh, I never heard of that. But, you know, so how how are you working on that aspect? Yeah. So the way our website works is if you become a GFDA member, then you log in you ha- and you get access to this toolkit that has resources for your area. We do not on our website uh, it's not like on our homepage, all these resources. Mm-hmm. It's kind of behind the mm-hmm. the membership thing. The membership thing. Laurence, well, how about you? Like, what resources do you use? Because I'm, what I'm trying to do here is to give designers, you know, you, you read this stuff, you see this stuff, and you just want to throw up your hands. And I don't want people throwing up their hands isn't helping the situation. So I'm trying to get a sense of what a designer in a, in a big city or a small town, how they can steps they can actively take to make the situation a little better. So, Lawrence, how do you operate? What do you recommend? You know, I, I think as Susan and, and Katie just mentioned a lot of what I do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the municipal waste, you know, mm-hmm. organizations, definitely contact them. I also have been using Renovation Angels extensively. Mm-hmm. We just empty a 12,000 square feet client, you know, single home. They just wanted to <laughs> renew everything new, you know. So we said, no, you know. <laughs> um, right. Use them. I think Renovation Angel is fantastic. Um, but we also do free shops. And sometimes also, I heard some designers also doing this. Uh, recently opening up some warehouse, one or two, you know, and then then collecting, collecting the, um, and sharing the cost of opening a warehouse, a small, a small warehouse or container place mm-hmm. where they can uh, really take all these uh, furniture that clients want to get rid of and then resell locally. Um, mm-hmm. These are some things that uh, some designers can do if they collaborate and work together. 
Yeah, that's great. Now, we had mentioned like refinishing and reupholstering and doing that. But, you know, to do that, you need artisans who know how to reupholster and how to refinish and Mm -hmm. how to do faux painting and all that. So I guess the question is, do you think there's enough talent out there? Is it hard for designers to find those resources? And maybe, Susan, you can even speak to this, too to keep that going because, you know, some, it's like, it's like houses, you know, old, I personally love old houses. I've always lived in old houses, but you know, a lot of the attitude is, oh, it's cheaper and easier to knock it down and build from scratch. And I think people feel that way about furniture. Have Mm -hmm. you encountered that, Mm -hmm. Susan? There is, um, it can be hard to find the right Mm -hmm. upholsterer. You are absolutely Mm -hmm. right. There is a fairly new organization I want to be sure everybody's aware of called the National Upholsterers Association. And they are Mm -hmm. a good resource for finding an upholsterer if you're having trouble finding one. Oh, that's great. It's, it see, is. there are these organizations, but people yeah. don't know about them. I know, I and know that, that one is that's fairly great. new. Mm-hmm. And, and right. you were so right that these people are a very important part of this sustainability equation for our communities to sustain healthily. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to have a job. And it has got to include repairing things. When I was a little child, long time ago, the (laughs) furniture store in our downtown little town was just as glad to reupholster your existing sofa as to Mm -hmm. sell you a new sofa. And I think we're going to see that coming back. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see training people to do that reupholstery as an important important driver for building our local economies. The British aristocracy has been doing that for hundreds of years. Exactly. I mean, you yes, know, yes, they, yes. it's like... Yes. And, yeah. and, and so did the French. And, and I completely right. hear what you say, Michael. I think it's yeah. so important to work with artisans and craftsmanship and really continue with that tradition. Right. And I think there's also an awareness actually from them to, we do this all the time, like to, to actually uh, educate themselves and say, hey, what is this healthier glue that I can use or this, you know, sealant? You right. know, and, and there really is this desire to really yeah. learn more, but to continue to work with them as designers and collaborate with them for our projects and, and really work on renovating instead of just a complete new, you know, always aiming for a new construction, yeah. you know, um, very important. Yeah. I think in the seventies and eighties, there was not a lot of respect for craftsmanship. And it was that, you know, that was the era of, you know, plastic furniture and the future was here and pop and all that. And, you know, they discontinued shop class in the high schools and all that. But it, part of the bad part of that is we lost the maker tradition. And I think that that is coming back and has been for a while, but I think there's an appreciation of that. Katie, have you found that to be true? Yeah, I was going to say, Susan, you and I talked about this at length last year when we were like, how can we get more of this going? But you're right, the National Mm -hmm. Upholstery Association does exist and it's great. It's a really good resource. The other, we have a partner of the GFDA called Revitalist and they have locations in San Francisco and New York. And this woman, Amy, who runs it is fabulous. And she has whole teams of craftspeople who revitalize wood, refinish stuff, uh, reupholster sofas, anything. So I send a lot of furniture to her. She's a valuable resource. Of course, she's not the only one. She just happens to be a partner. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is, especially with 
really long lead times now and global supply chain mm-hmm. issues that are probably going to mm-hmm. last for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pandemic's going to last for a long time. In yeah, this sadly. But this could last. Seems that way. This yes. could be our future. And we need to find alternatives, like local mm-hmm. pockets of real talent who mm-hmm. can make something faster than nine months to two years. I mean, mm-hmm. clients are going to get tired mm-hmm. of waiting two years for mm-hmm. furniture. And yeah. how wonderful of an opportunity for local communities to have more more skilled labor and more training programs to create these beautiful furniture products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And that brings up another issue that has a huge impact on our environment, which is, you know, packing, shipping, Mm -hmm. trucking, you know, and, and like you said, Katie, that sofa that went from the Bay area to North Carolina, back to the Bay area. How do we, how do we, Make that less so, but knowing at the same time, if your client wants to move into their beach house on Memorial Day weekend, you have to get everything mm-hmm. there by Memorial Day weekend. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how how can designers think about that? How do you guys think about that so that it will, you know, do you have to plan further ahead to minimize that? I mean, like Cherish is always like once a week, I get this thing from Cherish, you know, buy locally. Here's what's been, you know, I'm in New York, so here's what's from New York dealers. Because, and that's a great way, but, you know, you can't, that doesn't always work out. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Laurence, how, how do you deal with that? Mm. Yes, I was just talking about this with a big uh, textile company, you know, trying to bring their, their linen to the U.S. and then mm-hmm. just distributing it. It's like it's it's working on the carbon emission, you know, <laughs> especially if you still have to air freight. You know, what right. can we do? What contribution can we do? We, uh, and we still need to bring all of these textiles, you know, um, not to mention sometimes mm-hmm. furniture. And really also with clients, to answer your question, Michael, it's really about, again, a setting expectations. And, and it's, mm. as Katie mentioned, it's not easy, you know, it's, no. it's like, and it's all about just resetting these expectations and explaining how, you know, it, just keep educating how this is important, you know, for renewable energy, energy consumption, you know, avoiding the waste and really, really thinking clearly about packaging. Can we use more covers and carton boxes? You know, of recycle uh, carton, right. carton um, rather than all these plastic and, and other, you know, uh, non-healthy materials. It's scary how much just plastic I just put in the recycle bin every week, mm-hmm. you know, between milk cartons and fruit. Con- I mean, and, you know, you know, that's 50 percent of that stuff is probably not recycled. And mm-hmm. it's just really dispiriting. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in terms of shipping, Susan, Mm-hmm. What is the um, Sustainable Furniture Council? What is how do they work with their clients to deal with that aspect mm-hmm. of the process? What Sustainable Furnishings Council does more than anything else is provides information and guidance education. So in packaging specifically, and you just asked me about transportation, but in packaging specifically, no, that's fine. I asked we'll, about both. <laughs> we'll touch on all of it. Um, packaging, the Sustainable Packaging Coalition is an organization that we draw on a lot about packaging. Here in North America, we do not have as much recycling infrastructure as mm-hmm. we need for mm-hmm. 
packaging materials and other waste. So we do, especially since we've lost the market for a lot of our recyclables that we had in China. Yes, exactly. We, we really do need more infrastructure here. And a lot of that is going to be local, which brings us to the transportation question. We do help. I'm surprised at how often we are helping people understand, specifiers understand understand how to look for more, more locally. You know, it it does solve, we have a lot of um, ready listeners now because looking more locally can solve supply chain problems. Mm-hmm. So it, there are several pain points now, not just right. the proliferation of CO2 emissions with large distances covered. Right. But Katie, as you said, this pandemic might be going on for a while and these supply chain disruptions are likely to last for a while. But okay, let's say in 2024, let us hope the supply chain disruptions are done. You can get things from India. You can get things from China. You can get things from Vietnam. You can get things from Paris. How are we going to make sure now, plant the seeds now that like four years from now, people aren't going to say, oh, well, now I can get it, put it on a plane. Do you know what I mean? And get it to me. Is it changing the mindset? Is this sort of like cigarette smoking where it took years where you just have to like whittle away, whittle away, you know, get the message out. Nicotine is dangerous. You know, that took generations. Um, It did work. You know, Mm -hmm. some people still smoke, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it it was very effective. So do you think it's going to be much the same with sustainability in terms of the design industry? I do. It is all about changing the mindset changing the way we operate, potentially changing some of the business models instead of markups being really driving business and markups being between like 10 and 50%. What if they didn't exist? And instead you got paid more hourly for your design services, like other ways of thinking and thinking about the business model, I think is going to... So in other words, your fee wouldn't depend on how much stuff you bought. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes. It would yes. depend on mm-hmm. your skill, on how right. much you prioritize the planet, on how creative you get with your sourcing. Mm-hmm. Things like that, I think we are not quite there yet, but that's one of our goals eventually with the GFDA is like really to start shifting the mindset. I think we have to be on repeat about this message and how important it is. And the other thing is we're just at a really pivotal moment. I mean, we can't wait generations no. for no. this change to happen. Um, Those generations happened in the past, and we're reaping the benefits <laughs> of it. It was like fires, floods, mm-hmm. it's just mudslides. Mm-hmm. It's just horrifying. I mean, this summer has been yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, horrible. And I think that, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost, as the old cliche mm-hmm. goes. So I'd love to get a sense from each one of you, what are like, say, three things that any designer working going into their office tomorrow, what should they do and think about that's going to help their business to become, I don't even want to say greener because that's been around since the 60s, but you know, more sustainable, uh, having less impact on the planet. Susan, let's start with you. What would three things you would recommend to a designer? The first thing I recommend to a designer is for that person to ask themselves 
what they think they need to know more about. Do they feel like they understand what the issues are? Do they feel like they understand what consumers' priorities actually are? How many of the questions to ask, answers to look for, do they think they already have? Obviously, Laurence and Katie have a lot of them, but that's the first thing for a designer Mm -hmm. to ask. We at the Sustainable Furnishings Council happen to have a certificate course that is very useful in providing that overview information. It's called Green Leaders. So if the designer's first question comes up with a no answer, I don't know. No, I don't know what I need to know. <laughs> then yes, we've got an answer for you. There Take are the Green Leaders out there. course. Right. Yeah. And you'll find that it is all about Reducing energy consumption, CO2 emissions, greenhouse gases are Mm -hmm. what is causing global warming, Mm -hmm. CO2 emissions more than anything else. So what causes that more than anything else? Energy consumption, including energy for transportation. So reducing energy consumption across the board continues to be the most important thing for us to do. So do designers know what part of their own operations and their own reach is using the most energy. And the their own reach includes these complex supply chains we've been talking about. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so they need to think about what they need to know about those supply chains. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Laurence, what about you? What would you tell if you had a colleague and you were just having a drink with her or him, you know, and he said, what can I do? Mm-hmm. What would you say? Definitely echoing on what Susan said with reducing a carbon footprint. Really ask with your own company design, you know, firm, what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint? Maybe we can continue to go more digital, you know, purchase some carbon offers, support environmental organization, I'd say. That would be one of the first questions I would ask in addition to what Susan said, but also mm-hmm. really addressing in the supply, supply chain that question. The Demanding transparencies, more transparency from manufacturing and textile companies. So it's subtly putting pressure on them. You're asking, you're actually putting pressure, right? Uh, yes, you are. And, and and you're also educating yourself by asking right. questions. Asking right. questions is so important. What do you have mm-hmm. in that product? You know, how is this paint made? Or how is this, you know, furniture made? Where does it come from? You know, how was it made? Who sourced it and where? And mm-hmm. really try to understand more and more about this and really understand about healthy materials materials a little bit. And to do that, you know, it's really becoming more acquainted with standardized certifications. You know, what does the FSC Forest Stewardship Council mean? You know, what is the Walmart certification mean? What is ISO, ISO, like international as well as US, you know, standard certification? And really, really, I would say also do not only the green leaders certification course that the Sustainable Furnishing Council offers, but also this fabulous course, which is for every Everyone, designers, manufacturers, I would say in our industry, which is called the Healthy Material Labs course at the Parsons, uh, the new school. It is online. You can do it anywhere in the U.S. Oh, and it really opens, uh, you know, your mindset and, and your view on how many chemicals are in every furnishings, you know, materials, ingredients uh, have been used for generation and what we can do, what solutions are offered. It's really a mind-blowing course. Great. Well, that's good advice. Now, Katie, I'm going to give you the last word. 
What do you think? I mean, because I listen, I know certain designers have said, you know, given them grief because, you know, they, they want to be eco-conscious. They want to improve the planet. And then they have clients who are doing, you know, 40,000 square foot homes, all, you know, it's a very tough in our business to get sustainability. So what are three things that you would tell a designer friend yeah. he or she should be doing? Sure. I would say prioritize with the client what, if they're okay, waiting for a little bit and tell them why mm-hmm. it's really important to figure that piece out. Because whether they're waiting for a sofa coming from Europe, well, that's going to take a long time right now. But mm-hmm. prioritize Figure out what those priorities are for clients is the first thing. Then really talk to them about your values as a designer and what is important not only to your firm, but to the greater good here. You know, it's like we were talking a little bit ago of how frustrating it can be when things take forever. You want to move in on Memorial Day mm-hmm. and you don't have everything, but and everyone in that moment thinks that their project is the most important thing ever but it's mm-hmm. not, right? And it's important <laughs> yeah, well, for yes. sure. Yeah. It is definitely important. Don't get me wrong. I have been right. there. I am still right. a designer. But it's not. Like if if there are better ways to, to do things, that might be worth considering. So mm-hmm. to break it down, the three things you can do is really think about where you're sourcing materials from. What are those fabrics made of? Is the wood FSC certified? Are they um, recycled plastic products? Where are they coming from? And then can you repaint cabinets? Can you put new fronts on them? Can you fix your refrigerator and put a facade on it rather than tearing out all of the cabinetry? So things like that are actually like pretty easy to start implementing. 10% a year, 20% into projects. And then before you know it, it's like any 21-day routine. You start these new habits and all of a sudden it's not that hard to accomplish this. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I hope you're right. Um, you know, <laughs> you were helping the cause with Cherish. You know, I, I with hope such so. Right. Yes, Cherish is really good and they're yeah. very concerned with this. And that's that's a big help. But yeah. I do know people get overwhelmed and we can't afford to be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, as you all were saying, and we've reached a, a sad milestone. And I think we cannot go backwards. We cannot keep doing what we're doing. So, and I've learned about several great organizations from you guys. And, you know, I would say to our listeners to investigate and join and do research on your organizations, the Good Future Design Association, the Sustainable Furnishings Council, and also the places that you mentioned that course in Parsons, because I think People have to realize it's their responsibility too. You can't blame everything on the client. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, the client wants this, so we have to give it for the client. You, you know, you have to educate the client as well. If you're educating them about Georgian antiques or 70s plastic furniture, you have a duty to educate them about the environment and the impact of what they're doing on I mean, good luck with that, but I I hope you all do well with that. But anyway, I want to thank my three amazing guests here on this really important subject, which I know we'll be talking about again. So thank you, Katie Story. Thank Thank you, you. Laurence Carr. And thank you, Susan Ingalls. I really appreciate it. And thank all of you for listening to the Cherish Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time. Music